Welcome to the 5 by the rapid-fire board game review podcast that loves you from afar. In this episode, Mason visits medieval Spain in El Grande. I'm feeling heroic with Marvel Champions. Meepa Lady battles the Great Old Ones in Pandemic Reign of Cthulhu. And Luke gets hospitable with Grand Austria Hotel. But first, John races to review Flamme Rouge. The French countryside scrolls past you as you pump harder and try to catch up to the pack of riders ahead of you. In the distance, further down the road, is the Flamme Rouge, the flag that signals the last kilometer of the race. It's time to give it your all and cross that finish line. Flamme Rouge is a game for two to four players from Stronghold Games. It was designed by Asker Granerud and features illustrations by Aussie Haikala. In Flamme Rouge, players race down a modular track, striving to be the first player to reach the finish line. Each player gets two cyclist miniatures, two decks of energy cards, and a charming player board to keep things tidy. One of your riders in Flamme Rouge is a Ruler, which in the bicycle racing world means that they are suited for all types of terrain. Your other rider is a Sprinter, a rider that's good at sprinting. The Sprinter and the Roller's card decks reflect their respective riding styles. The Ruler's cards range in value from 3 to 7, while the Sprinter's cards have values of 2, 3, 4, 5, and 9. During a round, each player draws four cards from one of their two energy decks and chooses one to play. They then do the same for their other rider's deck. Once each player has chosen a card for each of their riders, everyone reveals their cards and starting with the rider in the lead, movement is applied. Energy cards represent the effort your rider is putting into the race, so if you decide to play a six, your rider moves up six spaces down the track. The card you just used for movement is permanently removed from the deck, so managing your cards is super important. The other cards you drew are placed face up at the bottom of the deck. Once you cycle through your deck and those face up cards turn up, you then shuffle the deck. But the game isn't just about drawing cards and playing your highest card. Much like in the actual sport of competitive cycling, you have to pace yourself in order to avoid burning out. Or so I assume, I've never been a follower of the sport. The last time I rode a bike, which was sometime in the 90s, I veered off a trail to avoid flying off a cliff and ended up hitting a tree. But that's neither here nor there. After all players have moved their riders, slipstreaming happens. Starting with the riders in the back, groups of riders that are exactly one space behind another pack of riders move up a space, joining the group that's ahead of them. Slipstreaming is handy because not only does it get you closer to the finish line, it's a great way to add some value to your cards. In a game where you're constantly discarding cards, gaining a point of movement here or there is pretty crucial. If you're the foremost player in a pack, you add an exhaustion card with a value of 2 to your deck. If you're constantly playing your highest cards and pulling away from the pack, you're adding punitive cards to your deck and you'll eventually start drawing more and more of these low value cards. Which makes thematic sense, after all, if you keep pushing yourself to the limit and are constantly concerned with being in the lead, you're gonna burn out. There's also terrain to keep in mind in Flamme Rouge. Mountain zones affect the amount of energy you gain from cards. This is another nice touch where theme and mechanisms converge. If you're starting on, moving through, or ending on a red mountain zone, all energy cards are capped off at two movement points. These red mountain zones represent an ascent up the mountain that taxes your energy reserves. There's also blue mountain zones that let you boost the performance of your energy cards. Thematically, these areas represent going downhill. So, playing a low value card while in the blue zone will boost that card up to a 5. Playing a card that's higher than a 5 in a blue zone will still net you its full value. But you want to use those low value cards in order to squeeze out more movement points. Strategic use of your lower value cards comes in handy here and a well-timed 2 can add some value to your deck, 
saving those stronger cards for later. The card play in Flamme Rouge encourages you to constantly consider the state of the board. Finding the perfect moment to break away from a pack to join the pack that's ahead of you makes for some interesting choices. Of course, carrying out such maneuvers is always subject to your hand of energy cards as well as the other player's card selections. There's a good amount of input randomness in Flamme Rouge, so players who are averse to such randomness might think about steering away from this otherwise excellent game. The game offers a good amount of variability with six suggested track layouts. There's also more track designs online from an unofficial app that also has a campaign mode. I really enjoy Flamme Rouge for what it is, a racing game that's approachable, quick to teach, and looks great on the table. It's a game you can bring to most game nights and teach in about 10 minutes. It offers the thrill and excitement of the last kilometer of a long distance race in about an hour and keeps you indoors and in the relative safety of your home. For the 5 by I'm John Gonzalez. Let's connect online. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram as Book of Nerds. Thanks for listening. Hi, I'm Mason Weaver. Let's talk about El Grande. First of all, I'm going to tell you not to go out and buy a copy of El Grande. It's really expensive new. It comes in a giant box. And the current retail version has a ton of expansions you'll probably never play. So why am I, a noted cheapskate and vocal opponent of buying new things, telling you about an expensive game? Well, three reasons. Number one, it's fantastic. For a lot of people, it is the area control game. Number two, if you have a regular game group, and a lot of our listeners do, it is highly likely that someone you know already owns a copy of El Grande. And three, you can play it online for free at yukata.de. That's Y-U-C-A-T-A dot D-E. And there is a number four, actually. While this used to be a game that everyone had played, the huge influx of new people into the hobby and the staggering number of games published every year means that old games, and I don't just mean crowdfunded games from 2012, just don't get played as much as they used to, even by the old guard. El Grande, from designers Wolfgang Kramer and Richard Ulrich, came out in 1995, and personally, I don't think it's aged a day in the last 25 years. One of the now truly classic Euro-style games, El Grande is mostly about putting cubes on a board. It's an area control game. It's an action drafting game. It's a push-your-luck majority struggle. It's a lot of things. It's very, very brown. Very brown. If you're looking for something slick and Kickstarter-friendly, look elsewhere. Now, I love the art, but I love classic Euro art, and Doris Mathis art in particular. She's the original artist of Carcassonne, which is my favorite game of all time. Now, there is a theme here, but it's pretty easy to ignore if you're not into it. It's medieval Spain and your grandes, sort of like a duke, I guess. I read up a little in the 16th century Spanish nobility, and it's more complicated than is relevant to this discussion, so don't worry about it. Well, as the grandes, your king is weak or something, and you want to take over the country. Why? Uh, as a pretense for a fun area control game, that's why. So the cubes are knights that you're sending into other provinces. The game board is a big map of Spain, and the point is to put your cubes into other areas so that every third round you have the most and then you get points, and then of course having most points at the end means that you win. Basically, it's just like every other area control game, but almost every area control game from the last 25 years copped their core mechanics from El Grande, and El Grande leans pretty heavily on both civilization and risk because, well, there are no new ideas. But other area control games don't have a cardboard tower to throw cubes into, and other area control games don't use a deck of bidding cards to choose turn order and actions. Well, okay, some of them do, but they all just stole it from El Grande. The cards here have a value and a number of cubes on them. The lower the value, the more cubes you get. If you bid a low card, you'll go later or last in turn order, but then you get to take more cubes from your stock. Once you've played a card, it's gone, and you'll never get it back. And you can't play the same card that someone else has already played this round. Turn order matters in El Grande because you are picking a special power or special action or whatever the hell you want to call it each round. 
In general, I hate games built around special cards that break the game's basic rules, but in El Grande they work because they're open information. You know that each player is going to choose one and most likely use it, so there aren't really any surprises exactly. It's not like a big deck card battle game where it's possible to draw up a killer hand and just smoke everyone out of nowhere. If other players are caught unaware, it's because they're inexperienced or just weren't paying attention. Because you're scoring every three rounds, El Grande is a game of fortunes made and fortunes lost. Your majority in a region can disappear in a single turn, so getting good, I think, and I'm not exactly sure because I'm not very good, but I think it's about remaining flexible and diversified, but not too diversified. So like a lot of other Wolfgang Kramer games, in El Grande you need to pick more than one thing to do, but you can't do all the things. Kramer games are often about balance and planning, and El Grande is no exception. There are a bunch of editions of this thing. The currently in-print big box version comes with six expansions, which I think are the same as my 10-year anniversary edition that I've never touched. Will you play these expansions? Maybe. I don't know. I've never bothered. There's plenty of game here, but there's more than enough content here if you get bored. Now, there's no getting around that this box is a big box. Every version is. The box is power grid size, but almost double deep, something like 15 by 11 by 4 inches. It is going to take up space in your life, and you need to be okay with that. Now, when I do the fun math, it's worth the shelf space because it really is that good, even if we don't play it that often. To reiterate, though, you should not go buy a copy of this game if you've never played it before. What you should do, of course, is to play it over on yukata.de, preferably against me. Now, if you haven't used Yukata before, it's sort of screwy and it's hard to get reliable public games going, unlike Board Game Arena, which in my opinion is the superior online board game site. All Yukata games are asynchronous, but you can choose to play in relatively real time if you're playing against friends. I suggest Yukata for people who already have friends who want to play games online, and Board Game Arena for people who want to find other people to play games online against. A word of caution though, there are people on Yukata with hundreds, like more than 500 logged plays of El Grande, so be careful who you choose to play against if you're looking for public games. You may just be setting yourself up for failure and disappointment. If you want to challenge me to a game, my username on Yukata is BreakfastCore, it's all one word, and you won't be disappointed because as much as I love El Grande, I'm abjectly terrible at it. So, who should play El Grande? People who have the patience to build a strategy out over multiple rounds, people who can be flexible and don't mind shifting tactics mid-game, People who either know someone with a copy, have unlimited disposable income, or don't mind playing online. And people who love to look at a big brown board covered in big brown map lines with big brown letters on it. I give El Grande 9 out of 9 regions in Spain with which to place one's precious cube people. I'm Mason Weaver. You can find me on Twitter and occasionally Instagram at Discount Compost. Have you ever wanted to be a hero? Not just a hero, but a superhero. A caped crusader fighting an epic battle against a villain who threatens the city, nay, the world. Today I'm talking about Marvel Champions The Card Game, a game I did not think I was going to buy. I'm not a fan of living card games or their close cousin collectible card games. I think constant acquisition is a problem in board games, and making ongoing purchases a core part of the game seems like a step in the wrong direction. Besides, while I enjoy Marvel movies and TV shows, I'm not a comics reader and don't have any deep attachment to the characters. But a friend brought Marvel Champions to our weekly game group a couple of months ago, and I enjoyed it so much that I bought it. Which turned out to be lucky, as Marvel Champions is very well suited to my current stay-at-home situation. Marvel Champions is a co-op game, in which each player takes the role of a Marvel superhero fighting a common enemy. The base game comes with five superheroes to choose from, Spider-Man, Captain Marvel, Black Panther, She-Hulk, and Iron Man. Each hero comes with a set of cards, plus you add another set of cards built around a theme like aggression or protection or justice. 
The rulebook includes recommendations for which set goes best with each hero, but you can mix and match. The cards give you special actions, added or upgraded abilities, and allies who are like secondary characters you control. Allies tend to be less powerful than main characters and also short-lived, but they really come in handy to give you an extra attack or defense. When you get tired of the available cards in the base game, there are expansion packs you can buy with new decks for additional heroes and villains. A few of these are out already, although the future schedule looks to be somewhat delayed by the coronavirus pandemic. I'm not champing at the bit to buy these expansion packs. As I said, I prefer standalone games, and I plan to treat Marvel Champions as a standalone game. Still, it's nice to know that they're available. Marvel Champions is not a traditional deck-building game, where you start out weak and buy cards to build a better deck and therefore more powerful character throughout the game. It's more about starting with a deck you like and learning how to use it as effectively as possible. The cards you draw have two functions. Each card can be played for its ability or used to pay the resource cost for another card. This leads to interesting choices in just about every turn. You might draw a terrific card, but not have the resources to pay for it for several turns, during which it's just clogging up your hand. Or, you might have to discard that great card to pay for another card that's less exciting, but does something you really need right now. The most fun part of Marvel Champions is coming up with a card combination whose abilities chain together, giving me multiple actions and reactions that each do a little or a lot of damage to the enemy. It can take some time to build just the right card combo, but when it happens, it's thrilling. I've had at least a couple of those really great turns in every game I've played. I will say that there's a lot of math working out numbers in Marvel Champion. I don't see that as a problem, but some might want something a little more freeform in a game about superheroes. My main issue with Marvel Champions is that while the box says it can be played by up to four players, I've played it at one, two, and three, and I find at three it drags. All that math of working out those combos, but you have three people with three different decks to coordinate. It can be a lot. I don't even want to think about how it plays at four. I'll probably keep playing three-player Marvel Champions because I have two friends who play it and I like playing with both of them. But I think it's best as a two-player or solo game. With two players, Marvel Champions moves along at a much snappier pace, and I really love it solo. The solo game is basically the same, but you choose whether to play one or two characters. Personally, I like having two characters to play off each other. Solo with a single character is more challenging. At least you're more vulnerable to being defeated by bad luck like if you have a bad card draw in the same round that the villain has a really good one. I may do more single character solo if after more plays the game starts to feel easy. But what really makes Marvel Champions so well suited to this moment is how easy it is to play remotely. Everyone playing has to own the game, but each player's deck is basically independent. I've played on a video call where we had three people playing heroes and a fourth handling the villain with their camera aimed at the cards so we could all see them. You could have one person play a hero and handle the villain. It would slow the game down a bit, but would be fine once everyone is experienced with the game. The only time cards are shared is when one hero plays an upgrade on another hero. When that happened in our game, the player receiving the upgrade just fished the card out of their box and added it to their tableau. This could get tricky if one player had expansions that the other didn't, but you could just use a random card and write down what it represented. In our game, one of the players set up a duplicate of the villain's tableau so he could see the game state more clearly. The others didn't do that, so I think it's up to you. In any case, it's really nice to have a game that we can play together and have a good time, even though we can't be in the same space right now. 
And that's Marvel Champions, a card game that lets you spend a little time in a comic book world that plays great solo or with friends on a video call. My name is Sarah. Look me up on Twitter, at Sarah Ovenall. Seriously, look me up on Twitter. It's my main source of human interaction now. I really want to hear from you. I'm a big fan of the Cthulhu HP Lovecraft universe. So when Pandemic rethemed its game into that world in 2016, I was totally excited and pretty indifferent to the original Pandemic game in general. But I do recognize its place as being a great gateway game to get more people into the hobby. And maybe playing Pandemic right now at this moment of history isn't everyone's cup of tea. This version does provide a nice escape from the same old, same old. Published by Z-Man Games and designed by Matt Leacock and Chuck D. Yeager, Pandemic Reign of Cthulhu is a beautiful cooperative game with awesome miniatures, great components, and in my opinion, more streamlined, but more punishing than the original. There are seven different roles to choose from, and instead of diseases, cultists and shogoths fill the board. They are pesky creatures. You as investigators are trying to seal gates in four cities in the Lovecraft world, Arkham, Innsmouth, Dunwich, and Kingsport. You all lose if Cthulhu awakens. If there aren't enough cultists or shogoths to fill the board, you run out of player cards, or all players go insane. The game plays similarly to the original Pandemic. You have four action points to use on your turn. Some of these actions include traveling from location to location, or removing cultists from off the board, like how you would remove the disease cubes. You can also give and take action cards from one another. You can also remove shogoths from the board. But that requires three action points. But you gain a relic, which are tools to help you during the game. You can also move from gate to gate, but that would require rolling the sanity die, which can result in nothing, or it can hit your sanity or add cultists to your location. If you lose all your sanity, you become insane, and your character card is flipped over, and you have reduced player powers. A player can restore their sanity by sealing a gate while insane, which then transports the character to the church or hospital. Players take their turn and then summoning cards are flipped over to show where to add cultists to the board. The Shogoth also moves closer to a gate when certain summoning cards are revealed. When a location surpasses three cultists, instead of an outbreak, an awakening happens. When this occurs, the next great old one is awakened and that increases awful effects for your game. As more great old ones are flipped over, the number of summoning cards flipped over after each turn gets larger. There are 12 great old ones in the game, and only 6 plus Cthulhu will be used per game. Shuffled among the player deck are Evil Stirs cards. They are like the epidemic cards of the original game. The character who drew the card has to roll the sanity die. An awakening happens, the Shogoth appears on the board, and then the summoning cards are reshuffled and placed on top of the summoning deck. If you run out of cultists or Shogoths to place, or you awaken Cthulhu, it's game over and you are devoured. The game is punishing, but it's quick and plays in about 40 minutes. Also, most gamers already know how to play Pandemic, so it'll be easy to jump right in. The cards and the game board are gorgeously designed, complete with the dark noir artwork representative of the Lovecraft universe, its cities, and characters. The game also comes with character and creature miniatures, which totally add to the game. There's nothing scarier than a Shogoth coming your way or a group of cultists 
up to no good at a specific location. Things can quickly get out of hand when groups of cultists in close proximity to each other start multiplying. If you don't like cooperative games, then Pandemic Reign of Cthulhu isn't for you. And while it may be too soon to play any type of Pandemic game, given the state of things in real life, this alternative world version may be just the thing we can all play together to feel like we have some kind of control over what's happening out there. And that's Pandemic Reign of Cthulhu. This is Meeple Lady for the 5 by. You can find me on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram as Meeple Lady or on my website, BoardGameMeepleLady.com. Friends, stay healthy and safe out there. Thanks for listening. Bye. It's no secret I absolutely adore dice drafting. I was first introduced to the mechanism years ago via Panamax, a stunningly underrated game with a relatively simple dice drafting mechanism that blooms into a set of massively complex interactions and one of the most opaque rule sets in existence. I knew I was drawn to the mechanism itself when I purposely chose to struggle through Panamax's awful rulebook to learn the game rather than simply just give up and move on. And I'm glad I did, because it opened my eyes to a mechanism that has become a staple of my board game library. I've previously reviewed two exemplary implementations of the mechanism for the 5 by Coimbra and Pulsar 2849, two games, not so coincidentally, that constantly float to the top of my list of favorites. It should come as no surprise, then, that Grand Austria Hotel hangs out with them at the top. Published in 2015 by Lookout Spiel and brought to the U.S. by the now-defunct Mayfair Games, Grand Austria Hotel was designed by Simone Luciani and Virginio Gili, two parts of a cadre of Italian board game designers who seem to pair off at random to stellar results. The group also includes Flaminia Brassini and Daniela Tashini, creating a band of designers responsible for a run of massively successful Euro games, including Council of Four, Teotihuacan, Lorenzo Il Magnifico, Sulkin, Coimbra, and The Voyages of Marco Polo. That is one hell of a design pedigree. Grand Austria Hotel's particular brand of dice drafting involves rolling a pool of dice and arranging them on an action board with each die value corresponding to one of six actions. The strength of an action is based on the number of dice in that action slot when you draft your die. So, if you need a resource like coffee or wine, and four twos were rolled, you can get four of those resources. When you draft a die, you remove it from the action board, which has the added effect of making the associated action weaker for other players. I am a huge fan of appropriately implemented and interestingly mitigated randomness, and Grand Austria Hotel hits a perfect balance. You can pay money to make any action slightly more lucrative, and if an action slot you need is empty, you can pass your turn, and when everyone else is finished drafting, you get to re-roll the leftover dice in the hopes of one landing in the action slot you need. This little push-your-luck element is a great extra decision that I absolutely love. Outside the specifics of drafting, Grand Austria Hotel plays very much like a streamlined Castles of Burgundy. Each player's hotel board hosts a 4x5 grid of hotel rooms in three colors, divided into clusters. You prepare rooms by adding tiles to them, and attempt to fill them with guests of the matching color. Guest cards are effectively like contracts in other games, with guests requesting specific foods in the cafe before they're willing to go up to their room. When you fill a guest's order, they'll grant you a bonus and allow you to flip a room tile. When all rooms in a cluster are filled, it generates a bonus of money, VP, or movement on the Emperor track. The Emperor track is probably my least favorite part of the game. You need to balance all your other actions with movement on this track, because at the end of specific rounds you'll get knocked back on the track and granted either a reward or a penalty based on your final position. I've never been a fan of this style of mechanism. 
they just end up feeling unnecessarily punitive. Unfortunately, they're common in Euro games from the early to mid-2010s and present in several of Simone Luciani's designs. At the opposite end of the spectrum is my favorite part of Grand Austria Hotel, the staff cards. Staff can grant you all kinds of bonuses, from ongoing benefits to once-per-round actions to extra endgame scoring. The designers were not afraid to make the staff wildly powerful, which makes them extremely fun to play and adds just the right push for players to vary their strategies. And in all my plays, they've never felt unbalanced. Although I compare Grand Austria Hotel to Castles of Burgundy, I don't think of it as a replacement. They're similar, but Castles of Burgundy tends to be a little more dense and maybe a bit more fiddly, although that makes it a heavier game than Grand Austria Hotel and differentiates the two enough that I enjoy both. The graphic design in Grand Austria Hotel is outstanding, with easy-to-understand symbology and excellent clarity. Unfortunately, the graphic designer isn't credited, so I can't call them out here. But the art is by the ubiquitous Clemens Franz, and it's fine. It does the job. I've never personally been a fan of Franz's art, but it's functional enough to be inoffensive here. Unfortunately, with the fall of Mayfair, Grand Austria Hotel isn't currently in print. It is, however, readily available used for around 40 bucks, which is absolutely worth it. Shortly after the game released, it was very hard to find, and I ended up paying 70 bucks for it, and I still think it's worth every penny. If you like puzzly dice drafters, this really is one of the best. My name is Luke, and you can find me customizing my games on BGG and Instagram at PixelArtMeeple, or on my website PixelArtMeeple.com. Thanks for listening, and happy gaming! You've been listening to The 5 by your bi-weekly source of rapid-fire board game reviews, and proud member of the Inside Voices Network. Follow us on Twitter at 5 by Games. Like us on Facebook at Facebook.com slash 5 by Games. Join our BGG Guild number 2810. Find us on iTunes, Stitcher, or Google Play, or visit our website at 5bygames.com. If you enjoy our podcast, please consider supporting us at patreon.com slash 5bygames. From all of us at the 5 by thanks for listening. The 5 by is part of the Inside Voices Network. Find more of our great content, like Great Way Games, at insidevoicesnetwork.com.